All right. When the Bible speaks of the heart, and it does quite often, it's usually referring to the emotional, the intellectual, and the moral center of the person, the spiritual heart. The physical heart, the organ that pumps blood throughout our body, is vital to our physical survival. And when it's unhealthy, it puts our lives in danger. Well, the spiritual heart, which is the seedbed out of which our actions first find their beginning in desire and motive, is vital to our spiritual survival. When it's unhealthy, it puts our spiritual lives in danger. But here's the problem. An unhealthy heart is not always visible from the outside, is it? Our text today is Psalm 50, verses 1 through 15. And in it, it reveals a dangerous heart problem, uh, an unhealthy heart within Israel, one that made their worship no longer acceptable to him. So how do we, how do we as Christians keep from having an unhealthy heart? What needs to be in place for our worship to be acceptable and honoring to God? Well, the Bible teaches us that worship pleasing to God is humble, it's thoughtful, it's thankful, and it's obedient. But how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, let's, let's look at the text this morning. Let's read it. Psalm 51 through 15. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God shines. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. There are three essential things that we need to offer acceptable worship to God. And the first is this, we need a right view of God. A right view is a high view, a high view of God and it's essential as a foundation for our worship. If God's own people don't have a right view, a high view of him, then they'll not be able to worship him as he rightly deserves. That just makes sense, doesn't it? We need a high view of God. So let's look at how God is described in this passage. We've already, re already read it. But verse one says, the mighty God, the mighty one, God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. He's the mighty one. God has absolute power and strength. He's omnipotent. He's the mighty one. He's incomparable in strength to all else, to all people, to all principalities, to all powers. 
God the Lord, he's sovereign. He's the creator, he's the ruler, he's the sovereign king over all. As such, he can speak and he can summon all creation to himself because he's Lord of it all. Verse two, and that was just from verse one. Verse two, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God's presence with his people is what made them the perfection of beauty because he is something to behold. God is the brilliance that shines forth. God is the true beauty that exists. Verse three, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire and around him a mighty tempest. God is active. He doesn't just wind things up and let it go like so many people think. He is, he's not silent. And when he does act, sometimes it can be quite terrifying. Notice the terms devouring fire and mighty tempest. These aren't words describing a passive or weak God, are they? But rather one who commands and deserves the fear and the awe and the reverence and the respect of his creation. Verse four, he calls to the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. He has authority over all things in existence. He's the rightful judge of all and especially his people. Verse five, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. God is a relational God. He knows his people. He's the covenant maker and he's the covenant keeper a covenant of sacrifice. And as such, he has the right expectation of our complete faithfulness. Verse six, the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. He's the righteous and perfect judge. Even the heavens declare it. Think about that. Even the heavens declare that he's the righteous judge. Is your view of God like this? Is it informed by his revelation to us in his word? Or is it merely circumstantially or culturally informed? Is your view of, of God like a child's view of the sun? Now, if I were to ask a child, how big is the sun? Likely they would probably hold their fingers up and that's about that big. Maybe some adults are like that too, I don't know. But it's that big. We know that their perspective is off, but it makes complete sense to them. But here's the reality. The sun is 151.97 million kilometers away. And it's so large that you can fit somewhere around 1.3 million Earths in it. That's hardly something we can fit between our fingers, is it? It's hardly something we can even fathom. But is God something or someone you think is small and distant and easy to fathom? If so, your perspective is the same. It's just as off. But unlike the sun, God is not distant. We see that in this passage. He's near and he's active. He's transcendent, which means he's above all things. He's over all things. He's unique from all things, but he's also chosen to be imminent. He's chosen to be near to his creation, especially humanity created in his image and his likeness. Our perspective about a lot of things can certainly be off. Many things are subjective. I remember as a kid thinking a Mr. Sub submarine was so huge and if you could eat one of those, you were the coolest. Now, that's an incredibly low bar for cool, I know. But that's, that's what I thought. But as I grew up, especially in my teen years, um, it became just a sandwich. And 
Now that I'm 50, it's starting to look awfully big again. Our view of God is not something that should be subjective, though. It must be based on truth, on the truth of God's word, God's revelation to to us of himself. In it, we see that God is unchanging. He doesn't need to grow in power or might or understanding or grace or mercy or love. In anything, he's perfect in every way. Malachi 3, verse 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And Hebrews 13, 8 declares that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change because he doesn't need to change. His perspective is never off, and his understanding of his creation, of us, is flawless. And as high a view that we can possibly have of God, he infinitely surpasses it. The reality of who God is far surpasses what we're able to comprehend. The infinite God has revealed himself to us in his word and even even in our experience as believers. Yet our, our finite little minds will never be able to fully comprehend him. He surpasses our greatest, greatest understanding and our greatest view of him. So does your view of God need to be increased? Now, I know a lot of you I don't know everyone in here, but I can say with absolute confidence that yes, it does. Mine does too. All of us need to constantly have our view of God increased so that we can better know the God that we worship. But do your daily habits show this? Are you actually seeking to know God better by being in his word or being in prayer? It's not a chore when you understand how incredible it is that God has revealed himself to us in his word, and by his spirit, because he desires for us to know him and to be in fellowship with him. Imagine that. And it's not because he was in need of companionship. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed from eternity perfectly, never in need, never lacking. But God knows that we, must, we most certainly need him because he knows us so intimately. He knows our weakness And this is awesome. Because of Christ, we can draw near to him. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As Christians, God has made a way for us to draw near to him through Christ. We can approach him. We have this incredible privilege in Christ Jesus. We don't just know God, but we are known by God. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3 says, But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And Galatians 4 9 says, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It should absolutely blow our minds that we are known by the God of the universe. A couple years ago, I challenged myself and the worship team to memorize an entire psalm. 
I chose Psalm 139 for myself, and this psalm speaks of God's intimate knowledge and understanding of his creation. The language in it's amazing. And here's, a, here's just a few key phrases from that psalm. Oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. You are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, oh Lord, you know it altogether. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So many descriptive terms used to to show us, to explain to us God's intimate knowledge and care for us as his children. He even knows our beginning and our end. He's inescapable. We can't hide from him. And he's so majestic that all creation worships him. Verse 6 says that the heavens declare his righteousness. Well, Psalm 19, verse 1 to 6 expands on this for us. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. Creation is in a perpetual state of worship of his creator. Humanity, God's special creation, most certainly should be too. Yet it highlights the wickedness in the heart of humanity when we fail to glorify him, when we fail to worship him as he deserves. So is your view of God high? Is it expanding? Well, a right view of God is an essential foundation to God-honoring worship. And a right view of God will lead us to our next point, which is a right view of ourselves. A right view of self. A right view is a humble view of self in light of who God is. And it's essential for true worship. Israel's low view of God resulted in a prideful view of themselves. And pride is always the result of a low view of God. Therefore, the higher the view we have of God, the lower, properly low view we will have of ourselves. Because pride isn't just arrogance. It can all, although it often shows itself as arrogance, a lot of times it can be too low, a self-deprecating view of ourselves that denies the fact that we were made in the image and likeness of God. Both of these forms of pride essentially cause us to Look inward, look at self. As we read through verses 7 through 11 of this passage, we see that God's not pleased with Israel. Things seem pretty good for them from a worldly standpoint. They're doing well enough to have animals for continual sacrifice, yet God wasn't pleased with them. Their plenty seems to have lulled them into believing that um, God wasn't that big a deal. They had a lot at their disposal, so offering sacrifices, continual sacrifices, was, was no big deal to them. They could supply God with whatever he needed, as if he was in need. That's hardly the right view of God, is it? A God who had supplied everything for them, remember? He rescued them, he sustained them, he fought for them, he protected them, he established them as a great nation. If we're honest, 
So often, times of ease and plenty can cause us to forget God, to shrink our view of him, to not rejoice in his presence and his provision, to lose sight of who the true provider is and the true sustainer is. We get caught up in what we have. Our focus is on our possessions and our ease. These become our treasure and they occupy first place in our heart. And we know that that is idolatry. If God doesn't occupy first place in your heart, then an idol does. Verses eight and nine, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. God's response to their worship is simple. I don't want it. I won't accept it. Can you imagine hearing that if you're Israel? They're thinking, yeah, but Moses told us to do this, this, and this, and we've done everything. We've checked off all the boxes. We've done it to the letter. They did that, but they missed the whole point. It wasn't meant to be a mere outward action. It was supposed to come from an inward attitude and desire to honor God and to keep in relationship with them. It was to be a reminder of who God is, his holiness, his righteousness, their helplessness and need for cleansing. A reminder of all that he'd done for them. It was never meant to be a mere ritual, especially one that somehow met a need that God has as if he's like us. It was meant to remind them of their neediness and their utter dependence on him, not God's dependence on them. It was to be an act of true repentance for their sinfulness and their pride. And re repentance is the opposite of pride. David in Psalm 51, which is the next Psalm over, demonstrates this for us in his brokenness over his sin. And he says in verses 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David got it. What is to precede our actions is an attitude of brokenness and humility before God. Verses 10 and 11, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. God is the true owner of all things and not in need of anything. Israel was proud, proud of their accomplishments, of their possessions. But God provided those possessions and he provided the sacrifices for them even. And he's provided for us the perfect sacrifice in Christ Jesus. We sang about that this morning. So when you consider this today, it's easy to look at Israel and say, how could they have gotten it so wrong? How could they be so full, full of pride? I'm sure I'm glad I'm not like that. We can say that. But let's consider how often we are so much like Israel Ask yourself with all honesty, why do I serve? Why do I tithe? Why am I here this morning? Why do I sing? Why do I pray? Why do I worship? Why do I work? Why do I give to charity? We know what our answer is supposed to be from 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that 
Everything that we do, we're to do for the glory of God. But can we honestly say that about our actions every time? I can't. I wish I could. Could it be that sometimes we too are lulled into the same religious ritual that Israel's being rebuked for here? Do we sometimes act as if God is just like us or maybe even less? A right action is not a truly right, righteous action if it's not done with God's glory in mind. There's a lot of right actions in our world that aren't righteous because of that. And Christians can be guilty of that too. And sadly, many people, maybe some in this room today, show up for church services on a Sunday, but the other six days of the week, they live exactly as the world lives, acting, speaking, and thinking like everyone else. They've learned how to compartmentalize their lives into sacred and secular. We have one day of sacred, maybe not even that. It might just be one hour of sacred when you're in church, and then six days of secular living where God is not really a part of it. He's kept out of sight and mind for the most part. Is that one day, is that one hour, two hours, so amazing and actually filled with real worship to be enough? Or is it to show, or is it just a show to appease our feelings of guilt for the other six days? Is that righteous? Is that what God is after? Do you serve or worship out of a desire to gain favor with God? as if you get points for attendance or for doing good? Is it out of compulsion because you think that God needs your gifts and abilities? Never mind the fact that he gave them to you. Is it to look righteous before man or to receive some kind of accolade or some kind of gain? The fact is we do gain in authentic worship because it draws us near to God and it deepens our faith. That's gain. Romans 4, 20 to 21 says, and this is talking about Moses or Abraham, sorry. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But, at, at, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham had a high view of God and in turn a right view of himself and his faith, his trust in God continued to grow as he gave glory to God, and as his faith continued to grow, so did his worship life. So what fuels your worship? Is it the glory of God? Is it the gospel of Jesus Christ? What God has done in drawing you to him and saving you because you were absolutely incapable of doing so for yourself? Do you even think about the words that you're singing or praying? Or is it mere ritual that makes you feel better about yourself? Maybe the gospel's become something to you that was merely something that got you saved. And since then, it, you don't give it much thought. The hope that we now have because God has called us to him in repentance and faith through the work of Christ is something that we are to daily remember and have invade all that we do and inform our worship Verse 12 and 13, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and the blood of goats? Now, what we read here about God tells us an awful lot about ourselves. We are not God's provider. 
He does not need anything from us to sustain him. God is not like us. He needs nothing outside of himself. We are not like God. We need everything outside of ourselves. We need help. Israel's covenant with God was not because God was in need of anything. It was for their benefit. They were the ones in need, yet they were behaving as if they were supplying God, as if God needed some kind of sustenance that only they could provide. But we are merely stewards, and God is the owner. We hear that here at Harvest all the time. We hear it because we need to remember that. We are stewards. Man's role is to steward that which is given to him. God's not in need of provision for us because it's all his. The world and its fullness are mine. That sounds pretty all-encompassing to me. That doesn't leave anything out. And in case we forget, God is reminding us here that it's all his. And when we fail to see our neediness and our dependence, we often become self-reliant and overly confident in our abilities, which from a worldly perspective doesn't sound like that bad a thing. Um, We don't champion neediness, do we? Yet we are. And it is so often those who are the most capable and competent among us that struggle the most with this idea. After all, if I can take care of myself, if I can take care of others, if I can buy a house, I have food and clothing, a bank account, a good job, a retirement plan. What do I need any help with? What do I need God for? That's a very temporal view of life, isn't it? A short life at that, one that could be over in the next moment. It fails to recognize the giver of life and of all good things who without his help, we will be eternally separated from him. Fails to see a greater purpose in life too. We are created for God's glory. We need him and we need to accept and embrace our utter dependence on him for for value and for eternal hope. If you've ever watched The Simpsons, you know they often comment on cultural mindsets, and this isn't a plug for the show, but whether on purpose or not, they did a brilliant job of illustrating this mindset. Bart, the 10-year-old smart mouth, says a prayer before dinner that reflects the mindset of so many people in our culture today as they see their needs as merely temporal. He says, dear God, we paid for all this stuff ourselves, so thanks for nothing. I mean, wow, whether they meant it or not, they nailed the North American cultural mindset, didn't they? We have access to so much with so little invested in it. And very few of us know what it means to go hungry or without shelter. And that's a good thing. That's great. But our system is set up in such a way that even if you choose not to work, Despite being able to, you will most likely have access to all those same resources. A culture of self and privilege has become the idol that has has replaced God for so many. And social programs meant to help the needs of a few who are legitimately in need are now a matter of right and privilege and have become a savior to many. Christians aren't immune to the idol of self either. Like Israel, we can fall into thinking that somehow our privilege as God's children is the result of being necessary to God, or that somehow our own goodness 
got us there. Our own worthiness gave us entrance into God's family. We forget that God's word tells us that there are none that are good and there, there are none who seek after him. A low view of God and a high view of self has a detrimental effect on many Christians. Ingratitude creeps in subtly, causing our worship to become stale and lifeless, just words. Our attitudes reveal our true heart condition. God's rebuke for Israel becomes our rebuke as well. Our right action, our outward appearance can seem perfectly fine to those around us, but God knows the heart. He sees the inward. He sees the condition of our hearts. So what is the right response? What does please God? Well, verse 14 and 15 of our passage, the last two verses, uh, help us with that answer. They say, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Our third point is we need a right view of worship. Acceptable worship is the outflowing of a thankful heart that desires to glorify God. We ascribe glory to God by reflecting back to him his own glory, glory that is due him. And we do it with gratitude as we recognize his greatness, his majesty, his sovereignty, and his goodness. When we think of Christian worship, we often think of the elements of worship. We think of gathering together on Sunday. We think of singing and prayer, reading from God's word, the offering, communion, preaching. We've actually fit all of that nicely into our service today, and those are good things. But here's the thing. We can do all those things, and we can do them faithfully. We can do them regularly often, yet still not please God. Israel was doing the things of worship in this passage to the letter, but God wasn't pleased and he wouldn't accept it. A sacrifice of thanksgiving was a peace offering to God from the worshiper. It was a voluntary offering shared with God, the priest, and the worshiper. It was a demonstration of gratitude and devotion as were their vows. It was about the heart. And God makes, makes it clear what he's really after. He's after a thankful heart. Gratitude that responds in obedience and even greater dependence on him. God, the most high, the one who is above all things is interested in your heart. He deserves more than our allegiance. He deserves our, our love, our adoration, our devotion, and he's worthy of it but he actually desires your heart because he loves you and wants you to love him back because this brings him glory and it brings us good. And here's the extreme that God has gone to for us. Romans 5 verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we hated him, while we despised him, while we ignored him, Christ died for us. In John 3, 16 and 17, which many of us know so well, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world was already condemned. God has done remarkable things for us. 
He doesn't need to earn our love and devotion, yet he's given us so many reasons to be thankful and to love him back. He reached out first, and he enabled us to reach back to him. The response that we're meant to have towards God that is expected of us is more than a mere outward expression. If the heart and the mind are not both engaged, if it's merely lip service that we're offering, then we're no better than the Pharisees that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 15, 8 and 9. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Ouch. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That's not how the church should be described. That's not how I want to be described. But 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. This is what should mark us as true believers. Joyful, prayerful, thoughtful, thankful in all circumstances through trials, through hardships, through suffering, but also through ease and through plenty. This is what separates us from the rest of the world. We perform our vows to the Most High and we call on Him and glorify Him. We respond in obedience to His Word, obedience that's a heartfelt heartfelt desire to live according to the instructions that God has given to us because we want to. We should want to be obedient. We've had our hearts softened towards God. Obedience like this doesn't come natural to us, but it's part of our regenerated hearts that God has given us. It follows faith. It flows out of gratitude for God's saving work in us and through Christ. It is in itself an act of worship and evidence that we've been changed from the inside out. This is based on the truth of who God is and then who we are in light of that. And because of all that he has done, it's difficult for us to separate who God is from what he has done because he's done so much for us. Worship was never meant to be a one day a week routine. It's to be what occupies us all the time, affecting every area of our lives and our relationships. But sacrifice without thanksgiving Actions without the heart will not please God. If we truly recognize God as a Father, a Savior, a Redeemer, a Redeemer, our Sovereign Lord, we will have thankful hearts. Proverbs twenty-one two says, "Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but God weighs the heart." Why you do what you do matters to God. If we understand that, then we should take stock in our hearts where they're at, where our true focus is, where our treasure is, especially when we're gathered here together on a Sunday morning. I usually show up early on Sundays. I didn't today, but usually I show up early on Sundays, really early, not because I have a ton of work to do, not because somehow I'm Mr. Super Dedicated, but because I know myself. I know my natural bent to getting the job done making sure that the service runs smoothly from a tech standpoint or that the band is doing things right. I can, I can do all those right things and be wrong because my, my focus is not on God's glory, but on getting the job done. 
And sadly, I've walked away from here on a Sunday morning, extremely disappointed with myself because I didn't, I did things right, but I didn't offer any of it to God. It wasn't for his glory. That's sad. It's painful when we realize that our dissatisfaction is self-inflicted from being inward-focused, self-focused, and not Christ-focused, being temporally focused instead of eternally focused. So do you actually want to glorify God with your life, with all of it, in all that you do? If so, then it's time to take stock and to consider the condition of your heart. Do you have real affection for God? If you say you love God, you need to know him. As we get to know God more, we will have a growing understanding of his steadfast love, a love that exists despite us. It's unconditional. It's unearned. It won't disappear when we're disobedient or forgetful, but we won't benefit fully from it and enjoy it until we repent and we return to him with humility and dependence and praise. My obedience doesn't make God love me more. And my sin doesn't make him love me less. His love is not dependent on me. It was never earned by me, nor could it ever be. It's evident in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is perfect in love. And his love was so beautifully demonstrated for us in the wrath that was poured out on Jesus Christ on our behalf, who bore our sin and our shame and the penalty that was due us on himself, even though he was perfect, but he was a perfect sacrifice. He paid the debt we could never pay so that we could be called children of God. It's his righteousness that matters, and it's what God sees when he looks at us. We don't become righteous through any right action of our own. It's impossible. Our righteousness, our goodness outside of Christ is filth in comparison to him. Christ alone gained right standing for us before the Father. God chose to love us before we even had the ability to love him back. In fact, his love for us pre-exists us. And it's that love that enables us to love him in return and to love others and to cause those who have been saved by God's grace to be children of God. 1 John 3.1, see what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Do you know Jesus? If not, you can. He doesn't require you to clean up your life before coming to him. He alone has the ability to transform you. We're saved not by works because we could never do anything to impress God. Nothing. So don't worry about that. Jesus made the way in himself. We can trust him and surrender to him and receive the free gift of eternal life and fellowship with him. If you've failed in your worship, then it's time to repent and turn towards God. Dig into his word. Get to know him as he's revealed himself to us. Pray, ask God to help grow a heart of worship in you. Grow a higher view of himself in you. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is a verse I use to counsel myself and others quite often 
And it says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We all want peace. We all want hope. But they're not what we're to be seeking first. Those things will be the fruit of seeking and abiding in Christ. And a thankful heart allows us to rejoice in God, even in the storm, because our affection for him eclipses all else. And here's some practical advice for Christians that I can wholeheartedly give, and not just because I'm the small group pastor, but you need to develop and nurture relationships with others who are on the same path as you, who want to grow in their worship and their walk and their work for Christ those who you can share what God is teaching you in his word, those you can encourage and be encouraged by, those who will challenge you when your life isn't matching up to what you say you believe, those that you can have regular gospel conversations with. I need those and so do you. And you will see your worship life grow as, as you develop those relationships. We have no greater task we have no greater purpose than to glorify God and to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and to show that hope to others. As, ask God to grow your heart for him in humility and gratitude, to grow you as a worshiper. A right view of God, a right view of self, and a right view of worship set us apart from the world by God's grace. And through Christ, enable us to offer a sacrifice pleasing to him. Worship from a healthy heart that is acceptable to God, who alone can carry us in times of plenty and suffering and keep us near to him, the safest place, near to him, the one who matters most. So let's thank God for that. <laughs>